blessing, saying, the Lord be with you as you worship. So would you say that with me? The Lord be with you as you worship. So we've been going through a series on forgiveness the last several weeks, and this really brings us into some of the most sensitive places of our lives. If you're going to talk about where you need forgiveness and where you need to forgive others, you're getting into some of the deepest and darkest places in our hearts. At least that's the case for me. So forgiveness is a deeply personal matter, but forgiveness is also very communal. It affects our society deeply, how we view and appreciate and value forgiveness. It's deeply, deeply important. For instance, if you think about many of the recent shootings that we have, I know this is heavy, but many of the shootings that we've had in our country recently, this is complex. I don't mean to give some broad explanation for why these happen. They are heartbreaking and they are complex. But you see often with these shooters, there's some deep grudge, some level of revenge as a perceived slight or grievance against a group they belong to or a personal insult that they've been holding on to for a long time. Many of these people are driven by a desire for revenge. Or if you consider many of the online discussion boards that you can find just about anywhere, if you even have the nicest of subjects saying the cuteness of puppies or who knows what, if you give that discussion board long enough, according to a guy named Godwin's rule, he says that eventually someone's going to make a comparison to Hitler and their enemies. That's just given a long enough time, that's what all discussion boards go to. The need for forgiveness in our communities. I saw also their article from Time Magazine about the rise of rudeness in our culture. They had an article about why are so many customers so rude right now? And they shared about how one mom in Connecticut was being investigated for slapping an elementary school bus driver. There, there's a woman in California who has a charge of felony for attacking a Southwest Airlines flight attendant and knocking out some of her teeth. So clearly in our society, we, we are on edge. There's some deep anger and aggression in us that we are wrestling with. We need forgiveness, kindness, compassion in our culture right now. So I just want to explore this this morning. How does forgiveness affect our community? How does forgiveness affect our community and our society? And clearly, we need this personally because forgiveness heals something broken and bent and twisted in us. When we get out of shape through wrath and through bitterness, forgiveness brings us into a place of healing. So how does this similarly happen for our community and our culture? Explore this today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you, open up with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter four. I have this on a screen for you all as well. But Ephesians chapter four, verse 31 Home group leaders, heads up. This is a great passage to sit in. We're just going to be looking at several verses here, but encourage you, look at this whole chapter four in your home groups in this week. That might be a good place to go. But let me read this for us. Ephesians chapter four, verse 31 through 5-2. Paul writes, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We say here at King's Cross, it's God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a power and a potency to this passage. It's not too small to say this has been world-changing. That Paul is calling this church to be shaped by God's example of forgiveness towards them. Follow his example, his kindness, his compassion. And this has gotten down into the bloodstream of our culture and society through the centuries. It has shaped us as a society in our very thinking. For instance, Dr. C. John Somerville, he's an English history scholar at the University of Florida. He would give his students a thought experiment for them to recognize just how much their thinking about right and wrong and other people has been shaped by Christianity and by the gospel. Even if they don't call themselves Christians, they still carry much of this weight and thinking that's gotten into our way of viewing things. So in this thought experiment, he says, consider that you see an elderly woman walking down the road towards you with a purse on her shoulder. And he says, would you rob her or not? It'd be easy to grab this purse, run off. Would you rob her or not? And importantly, why would you or why would you not rob this vulnerable elderly lady? John C. Somerville, he draws out that before Christianity, most cultures were an honor-shame culture. Stay with me here. They were an honor-shame culture. So much of their morality was driven by what's going to bring them honor and what's going to avoid shame coming on them. That's how they processed. So if someone saw an elderly woman walking down the street, a man would not, would not rob her because she, as an elderly woman, has earned honor. She has earned respect by her old age. And this person, if they robbed her, they would lose honor in their own eyes to mistreat her. Even more than that, if someone happened to see them rob her, they would lose honor in their eyes as well. So it's a self-considering system, shame, honor, that they would not rob her from those motives. But he says this Christianity began to permeate the world. It started to change the way we think and consider one another. And instead of being a shame and honor, it's actually a dignity culture that Christianity brings. So if, as we see now, someone walking down the road, we would not want to rob them because we'd think of their circumstances. It's caused us to think, how would this affect that woman to be violently robbed? How would that stir her up, fill her with fear? More than that, it leads us to think about her circumstances. Are people dependent on her? Are they relying on her for money? And so we'd see, I'm supposed to treat this person with dignity and with kindness. I can't rob them. It calls us to be other-considering rather than looking at ourselves and how this would affect us. See, these shame and honor cultures, they're self-considering. How will this impact me? But Christianity, again, it's a dignity culture that views us it calls us to view other people differently in their circumstances, in their value before God. 
that you have inherent value and dignity that you did not need to earn. It's already yours, and I'm supposed to treat you according to that dignity, not necessarily what you have earned. And it doesn't mean this honor-shame has entirely gotten out of our culture. We still have groups like Hatfields and McCoys, right? Still have groups that want to get revenge on one another and earn their honor back. And that's still deeply in our culture in certain ways. But overall, we've been shaped by this idea that people are inherently valuable and have dignity, and we should treat them that way. And this Dr. Somerville, he said many of his students would open up their eyes saying, I didn't even realize that that kind of view of people came from Christianity. I don't believe in Jesus, but that's how I view the world. That's what's shaped me. And it's in this kind of dignity culture that forgiveness begins to thrive. This is so important. It's in this kind of culture that it makes sense to forgive one another. Because if someone's done something awful, they're worthy of shame in a shame-honor culture. But in a dignity culture, you have value because you've been made in the image of God. You have value because God himself came in Christ and was crucified for you. You have value regardless of what you've done, regardless of what awful things you might feel ashamed of. We still know you have deep value. So even in the hurt and the ways you've done things wrong, I have a cause to still treat you with kindness and compassion, with dignity and with forgiveness. Do you see this? You see this. What happens, however, if we remove God and forgiveness from the equation? What, what happens to our world? You can see this is increasingly the case in our modern American culture as we step away and leave these moorings of Christian teaching. More and more we still have a memory that people are worth dignity, but we have lost the foundation and the why. This is so important. So even as we say forgiveness is important or we say forgiveness is good, yet when someone makes a mistake, we feel right in treating them with contempt. We feel right in pouring disdain on them because we've forgotten the foundation and the deep why that they have dignity. It's been lost in our thinking as a culture. So instead, we're entering back into a place of shaming and entering back into a place of outrage. This is what's happening in our culture today. For instance, a writer named Ed Stetzer in a book called Christians in an Age of Outrage, he gives this example that back in 2017, Hurricane Harvey wrecked the Texas and Louisiana area. And there's these reports that started to come out about megachurch pastor and prosperity gospel preacher Joel Osteen. You might have heard his name before. There's these reports that Joel Osteen was refusing to help hurricane victims. And he was refusing to open up the doors of his church. And this church is just massive. 16,800 people can fit in their church. And he was refusing to welcome people, it said, and sending them on to other centers instead. And from the left and from the right, Christian, non-Christians, we just began to pour on the hate on Joel Osteen. Just the vitriol. And we thought he was disgusting, terrible person. Again, Christian, non-Christian, everybody jumped on the bandwagon. 
Ed Stetzer draws out that although he deeply disagrees with Joel Joel Osteen and much of his teaching about the prosperity gospel, and I will second that motion, I think it's an unhealthy teaching, he said that many people are actually getting misled by these initial reports and that their outrage was unwarranted. There was deception here. And we're so quick to tear somebody down without hearing the whole story. He draws this out. I'm sure you've seen this quote. The irony for some in this moment is clear. They hate Osteen because they believe he distorts the truth. And then they do the same when they critique him with false information. So everyone was wanting to jump on this bandwagon to tear him down. And at times there is a need for judgment and discernment to say this thing that's happened is wrong. That this is not good and needs correction and needs consequences, but there's a difference when we arrive at a place where we take delight in tearing someone down. When we're just eager for their shame and for their worthlessness to be highlighted, something different is going on in our world. Do you see this? Even if it's accurate, we're still hungry for them to fall apart. And even with misinformation, we don't want to hear the truth. We like to look down on others. Man, this is hard. How did we arrive at this place as a culture? Just hang with me. How did we arrive at this place? Take a couple steps with me. First of all, I want to look at a couple roots and causes and shifts in our thinking that have led us to this culture of outrage today. So first cause here is that we believe we must define ourselves. We believe we must define ourselves. Might be a little strange, but hang with me. As we increasingly leave this teaching of Christianity, that we are defined by God, that's who I am, who you say I am, as we were just singing. I am defined by your words towards me. I'm defined by your love. And instead, instead of having an identity in who God says we are, we are increasingly looking to ourselves to define ourselves. What, what do I mean? We all have to answer this question. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What's my value? And where do we look to answer this question? And for centuries, we were able to look to the goodness of God and say, I know who I am. You're the God that gave yourself for me, and you call me your child. I have deep value in you. I know who I am. This is my foundation and my identity, and I know my purpose. What a beautiful joy that God says, I've made you to be in relationship with me, that you would enjoy me and delight in me, and that would glorify me. That's your beautiful good purpose. But if we throw that all out, we're we're left in this place of not knowing. And it's insecure and it's tentative. It actually leads many people on this confusing introspective journey to find out who am I? What's my purpose? Why why am I here? And more than that, because it's a self-given identity, it will not stand in the day of suffering. When your dreams suddenly hit a wall, when suffering comes and interrupts, you have to wrestle even more. What's my foundation? What's my real identity? And if you know you gave that to yourself, it will start to crumble. It will not bring you through tragedy and difficulty and suffering. So we are so tentative and vulnerable because we believe we must define ourselves. This brings us to a second cause. Secondly, 
we have a danger of group mentality. As people are not finding their worth in Jesus, oh man, he's so good to us. We increasingly want to look to other groups around us to shore up our confidence and our identity. Now hear me, community is a beautiful gift, right? We are made to belong to one another and have deep, meaningful relationships. We are made for that. However, there is a shadow side to groups, aren't there? This hidden mentality that often we can try to increase, hear me, increase our connection with one another by setting ourselves in opposition to someone else. So we create a we more by creating a distinction between us and them. And the more we can look down on them, the better we feel about us. I mean, this is great in sports. Love it, right? K-State beat Michigan State this week. I watched that game. That was great. I'm an Ohio State fan. We share a common enemy. I feel bonding with all these K-State people around central Kansas. Yes, we can celebrate their turnover in the last five seconds of overtime, right? We can do that because it's sports. It's fun. It's a team. But in so many other areas of life, for the us versus them, it can lead us to a place of looking down on others with disgust. And you are awful and worthless, and we're the ones that are righteous and are good. Again, Ed Stetzer, I thought, really fascinatingly drew this out through a study that these UK researchers did. (laughs) Really oddly, these UK researchers observed how university students responded to being given a sweaty t-shirt. And some of these sweaty t-shirts had their university logo on it, and others had another university's logo on it. Aren't researchers the most creative people? Like, who comes up with this? Like, let's do this. That's a beautiful group of people, right? But they saw that people visibly had less disgust for this sweaty t-shirt when it had their own university's logo. When it had another university's logo, they felt much more free with their disgust and their disdain. Much more free. I'm sure you can feel this makes sense in our world. And it's not, unfortunately, it's not just true with physical dirty laundry, right? This is true with the moral laundry that comes out. As someone's in our group and they have their moral laundry come out, we are much quicker to go easy on them. But if it's in someone else's group, man, let's just pile on the shame and the anger and the disappointment, and even the hatred, because they're outside of our group. We can look down on them and feel better about us. Man, God's people, unfortunately, the church is not immune to this. Can I say that? The church is not immune to this. That often we go easier on our own pastors and leaders and others in the church at times when we're not calling out sin when we should because it's in our group, and so we, we hold ourselves together in a different way. And at the same time, we are so quick to jump on a bandwagon and pour on the vitriol when someone else outside of our group makes an error or a mistake. And it's understandable why so many people have been hurt and have left the church, because they feel the church is this place of looking down on others. If you don't belong here, if you're not in our group, They feel judged. 
And I feel the church is full of hypocrisy. I know people have walked away from the church because of this. But hear the good news. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not how his heart or his character operates. That we're not supposed to be founded here, this is such good news. Our church is not supposed to be founded on our own goodness. We don't belong because of our righteousness or our track record, praise God. So we come in here in gladness and in worship because I have a God who's given me his righteousness by faith. I had none on my own, and he saw me in my desperateness. He saw me in my uncleanness, and he said, live, Caleb. And I'll give you my life, and I'll give you my righteousness, and you didn't earn any of it. And so you will be my son by grace. And it's tough to boast when you're in that place, no? It's tough to boast when you have this common family founded on the grace of Jesus. This is his way. This is how our body is supposed to operate. How can I look down on others when my God had mercy on me, his grace towards me? Let that be what happens in our church body. If this is the case here, what's the other effect, another cause here, rather? Secondly, this group mentality that's dangerous. But thirdly, I won't spend long here, technology has been a challenge. Technology. This is not new, disdain, disgust. This didn't just come up since the 1990s in the internet, right? This has been around for a long time. However, what used to be said perhaps in a room of five people can now be proclaimed to hundreds and thousands of people. And what maybe would have before taken place is a face-to-face conversation where you were reminded of that other person's humanity, where you can see them and have a discussion. Now we can have the anonymity of being online and saying whatever we want to say. And it just leads us to be, can I be honest, more vulgar, more full of hatred towards people, more condescending. On top of this, it's amazing how the internet creates silos in community that we only hear people that we agree with. And so it just strengthens that us and that looking down on others, the, the them. So again, this is not a new thing, but it's a challenge in our world today. Technology has not created the issue, but it has certainly aggravated our disgust and disdain towards one another. So again, it's not responsible for the whole cause, but it has sped up the route. So these are our three causes. What's this done in our culture? I want to look at two effects briefly here. First of all, first effect, we are more easily offended. We're more easily offended today. I want to be really careful as I say this, however. I want to be careful. There are things that are worth getting upset about. There are things that are worth getting offended about. Now, let's just say sexism is real. Racism is real in our world. There's injustice happening around the world that we should be angry about, that we should be stirred up as God's people. This is what God's heart bleeds for. The homeless, the orphans, the widows, God gets upset about these things. So there are things worth getting offended about. But Jesus, in his language, is about loving your neighbor, speaking for their benefit just, just two verses before what I read here in Ephesians. Just go there with me. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Look at what Paul says here about our language towards one another. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only 
what is helpful. Man, that's challenging. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So I should not be looking to offend anyone. I should be looking to build you up what will strengthen you, what will stir up your affections for Jesus. Now, it's true. Jesus was very good at offending people. He was very good at stirring the pot. But let me tell you, he especially did this for people like me where I come from who were stuck in their self-righteousness. He was amazing at offending religious people that looked down on others. In love, he wanted to wake us up out of our self-righteousness, so he kindly had offensive things to say. But Jesus was not offensive out of a callous heart. He was not offensive out of being unaware. He never used that as an excuse. So let me just slow us down. Sometimes we can say, oh, people are easily offended as an excuse for us to stay in comfortable and offensive places. Can I say that? We use this as an excuse for our own tongues getting out of control in what we speak to other people. So we've got to slow that down. Let nothing come out of your house except what is helpful for building others up. However, I think it is possible for us to be more easily offended. It is possible. As our identities are not grounded on the rock of God's affection for us, we are more easily thrown off in our fragile sense of identity as we're holding on to who I am and what I'm about and my purpose, any word or insult or slight can throw us off all the more and to feel like an attack on your very person. This has changed because our foundation of our identity has changed. So we are more easily offended today. Secondly, this effect, it's led us to, I think accurately, a culture of outrage. Culture of outrage and lacking forgiveness. As we no longer see ourselves as divine recipients of divine forgiveness, we have lost a motive to give forgiveness to other people. As we no longer see ourselves as amazing debtors that God has so graciously forgiven, we've we've lost this motive to forgive those who have debts to us, right? So in that, we no longer see someone's dignity based on the image of God, the dignity of someone based on God giving his very life for them. And so when they've made a mistake or an error, especially towards us, we feel very vindicated and pouring shame on them. That's what they deserve. That's what they've done wrong. That's now what they deserve. It leads to a culture of outrage. Hear this from a cultural commentator, Alan Jacobs. I think he sums this up well. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but more so. The great moral crisis of our time is vindictiveness. There's a lot of a mentality today that as we leave Christianity, people are more free and we're less moralistic, less judgmental, but he's accurately pointing out it's the opposite. As we leave the foundation of Jesus and his grace and his teaching on the cross and who he is, it actually leads us to be more judgmental. Leads us to be more moralistic and vindictive. This is how I think we've gotten here today, but let me explore another question with you. How does this change? How do we get out of this place of a culture of outrage and unforgiveness? How does this change? Look with me again, this beautiful passage of Ephesians chapter 4. Go back with me here. Let me read this again. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There is no power like the gospel to soften our hearts towards one another. As I see, oh God, you have so rescued me. You've been so full of compassion and kindness towards me. And as I see myself as a recipient of his divine goodness, what greater power is there to motivate us to be full of compassion towards others? There's no power like the gospel to break down our walls between groups, to break down our self-righteousness. If I see I needed rescue from God, not in a small measure, but I needed God himself to be crucified for me. That's the cure I needed. That breaks our self-righteousness. And I see you've given me a gift, a gift of your righteousness. That breaks our pride leads us into genuine humility towards other groups. So hear the beauty of the gospel, that while we were his enemies, God sought you out. While you were lost and dead in your sins, God gave his very life for you. And while we were stuck in our own self-righteousness and in our pride, God gave us by grace his perfect, matchless righteousness for us to have freely. What good news. And this should lead us to say, how can I look down on and judge others when Jesus was judged in my place? How can I do that? How can I refuse to forgive someone else and look down on them with disdain and trash their dignity when Jesus had his dignity thrown to the side. When Jesus suffered and he faced disdain and disgust and soldiers spitting on him and calling him names. When his dignity was dragged through the mud and he hung on a cross so that mine could be restored. How can I then look down on other people and say you're worthless and when this is what God did to show me my beautiful worth to him, shouldn't that slow down our hearts? Yes. What is more powerful than the gospel to soften our hearts and break down our walls towards one another? This is real too. I'm, I'm not just saying this as a theoretical. This genuinely changes communities. I just want to share one more story here. This is heavy, but I think it accurately shows the power of the gospel to change a community. Back in 2016, there's a gunman that entered into a small Amish schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. And this gunman, he shot seven kids from the age of seven through 13, and five of these kids died. As quickly, this mass shooting caught the national media and their attention, but something began to stand out as different about this shooting. Something was different about this community quickly was reported, even in the midst of this awful tragedy, genuinely, it's heartbreaking, they began to report how these Amish families, this community, was going together to the shooter's immediate family to express their sympathy to them. 
they went to the shooter's parents to express their sympathy because the shooter had shot and killed himself after killing these kids. So in the midst of their own grief, the very same day, they have a mindset to think about their enemy's family. And how can I go and show compassion and kindness and love and sympathy to them? And obviously this doesn't mean that they were okay with what happened or they were blowing by it or not sitting in their own grief. All of these were true. But they also saw, what about this family that must be sitting in such shame and that must be so lost and wondering if we hate them. Let's go and show them the love of Jesus and express our sympathy for their loss. The person that killed our kids, we will go and comfort their family. That's unbelievable. And I think it only came because this Amish community have been trained in the teaching of Jesus. You will love your enemy, if you really know me. You will forgive those who have hurt you. You'll pray for those who've persecuted you. This is what they had been taught. You will see that God has given us this example of his kindness and compassion and his death for us. This then is how you ought to treat one another. I'm gonna call the band back up for us to continue in worship a bit more. But I want to sit in this together, King's Cross. Let us be a community that is defined by this kind of forgiveness. We need to be a community and a church that is shaped by the gospel so that it is our gut reaction to care for and give sympathy and grace towards other people, particularly our enemies. I'm longing for more change in Rice County. I'm longing for renewal and revival in this county in central Kansas. I want to see God work here. But you know how he often does that? The people of God suffering and showing the life of God in the midst of those places. So people see something is different about this community. You're not shaped like the rest of the world is shaped. You're shaped by compassion and grace and Jesus. So as we're praying for that, we might very well be given opportunities where we're hurt and then we get to show forgiveness and grace. And may that stir up in people's hearts a curiosity about the kindness of God to us in Jesus. So keep praying with me for God to revive this place. Keep praying with me for God to work and make more disciples in this place. And be open to how God might want to do that through your heart, through the enemies you have in your life here. I know we have our prayer team in the back there would love to pray for you because this might be like, okay, some people are coming to mind that I'd rather not forgive. But maybe you just need prayer. God, would you help me begin to take that softened step because of the gospel that you want me to demonstrate this to other people? Our church, our community, our country needs this kind of example. So receive that prayer. In this, would you pray with me right now? Oh, Lord, you've given us such power in you. It's unbelievable that you've put your Holy Spirit in us and that when we feel powerless and out of control, when we feel full of bitterness, rage, and anger, and malice, and all these other forms of unhealthy anger, Jesus, your Holy Spirit softens us and it calls us back into life and surrender to you and repentance so Jesus, for my hard heart, for maybe other hard hearts in this room, would you soften us right now with this reminder of your great love towards us. God, thank you for the power of the gospel that it has to transform lives. 
Would you, God, again, whisper that by your Holy Spirit, that we are who you say we are, and that you've given us such deep evidence and demonstrated that through your death for us, Jesus. Speak your gospel to this room right now, Lord, that you'd preach that yourself in our hearts. (laughs) We'd hear our own thoughts get carried away by the truth of your goodness. We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, if you're able, would you stand, sing.